All right. Here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Yeah. Episode yeah. 42. 42. If, yeah. if you are a listener and you're expecting the answer to all of the universe's questions here mm-hmm. in episode 42, then you yeah. got the joke. Then, there it is. There it is. I just thought I'd you know throw that out there. You know? Yeah. A little hitchhiker. Meaning, meaning of life. Yeah, meaning of life, but what's the question? Who knows? Yeah. Um, little Hitchhiker's Guide pack to the a, Galaxy. Pack a towel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, hey this is Ollie. This is Science in Between. And uh, this is Scott. This I'm also on Science in Between with Ollie. Yeah, yeah. yeah here we the, are. It's two of us. It's the two it's, of us. Just the two of us. Oh, I knew, uh, you know. I, yeah, I, it was there. I thought oh. I'd take it. Yeah. I, I think I think if if I was a listener, I'd probably fast forward through the first like two minutes of the show every just show. the first two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I'd fast forward through the first forty three minutes and just get to the things that bring us joy at the end, and then sure. just call it quits. Call it quits, like, right? And even that's pretty nerdy, but right. but at least at least you might occasionally get something that is of use to you. But the rest of this. But those are all in the show notes. So why would they even? Oh, they that's just true. Like, Good point. They look can at go the show to the notes. website. Right. They could just look at the show notes and just go, all right, done. Yeah, yeah. done. And there's yeah. even links out to the thing. So they, oh, yeah. Wow, yeah. you shouldn't have said that. I know. Well, the good news is people fast forwarded through this part of the show. So they won't hear that, that it's all in, in a web page uh, on our website. Yep. There you go. Because that's where you keep web pages on a website. I don't, I don't know if you knew that or not. On you the keep, interwebs. You keep them there. It's like a book. <laughs> so there's pages, but it's wow. it's electronic. Tell us more, what, Uncle Scott. Yeah. So th- we used to have just mail, and then we got the e-mail, which was uh, the electronic mail. It was much more um, bits. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Stop by anytime. Uh, Thanks, for, Uncle Scott. For, for stories best. with old guys. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 what was the question? <laughs> That's great. That's what we yep. should have named the podcast. Stories, stories with old with guys. Old, oh, yeah. 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 That would, I mean, certainly that would have brought a whole uh, listenership that we don't currently have. Right. The metrics would have been through the roof. Yeah. Because old guys love podcasts. Yeah. It's like, what's a podcast? Yeah, that's that's podcast. Yeah, I'll tell you a story after after the after the episode about about some 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 folks I I ran into recently. Anyway, so that's a that's an aside. Hey, what are we doing today, Scott? What are we talking about? What are we doing today? We are going to talk about uh, Sir Jay Lemke. I don't think he's actually Sir Jay Lemke, but uh, Jay Lemke's uh, book entitled Talking Science, Language, Learning, and Values. And this is a book from 1990. Um, And it is probably um, one of the most central books of that period in terms of science education um, for lots of reasons. And we're going to talk about that today. But just in our continuing uh, stroll through um, educational theory and its application to science and science teaching, um, you know, we, we had to stop with, with, uh, with Dr. J and have a little, uh, visit wow. with him. Yeah. Dr. Thank you. J. 1976. Um, so yeah. So, um, so we're going to talk a little today about his book. Um, and, and it, you know, 1990, just to put it in a little bit of a perspective. So we, we've talked about, um, the situated, Situated Cognition in the Culture of Learning last week, the Brown Collins Do Good. That was 19, 
89. This is a year later. So this is right in the mix with this um, transformation of educational research by Vygotsky and sociocultural thinkers and sociologists. And so there's a real shift. And, and so, so Jay's book is, um, is sort of right at the, at the beginning of that process and, and is really important for that reason. It's, it's a really, really interesting book. Yeah. And, and it's available on Eric. We'll put a link in. Um, so you don't actually have to go buy it. Eric has uh, like a digital copy of it. Um, and what's, what I think is really interesting is that it's part of a, uh, a language and educational processes series, which, you know, um, if you look at some of the other books that were in that series, like ones from Marilyn Cochran Smith, who, you know, she's you know, just, you know, a God in educational research and, mm-hmm. and teacher education. But I think that the, uh, if you go to the, the preface, which I usually buzz right by the preface, right? Those are usually ones I just like buzz right by because it's like, okay, let's get to the stuff. Let's get to the substance. But I think yeah. this is the, but I think there's something really important here. Well, well, I don't think this book actually talks theory per se, like there's not a whole lot of theory, you know, it really talks about the, the stuff we do in our classrooms really well and analyzes it really well. But I think this is why this is a good sort of build off of our last conversation in the last episode. So um, this is again in the preface, education and language are viewed as diverse and situated processes, thus mm-hmm. to understand the role and function of language in the education of individuals and social groups, we must understand how language functions in and across various educational situations in the home, in pre-kindergarten, through high school, in college, in the workplace, and in mm-hmm. postgraduate and professional education. So that's yeah. the whole, the social processes here, the, uh, the role of language is here, the role of discourse, all of that stuff is really builds nicely from our conversation in the last episode. So I think that's a, yeah. you know, because you and I were talking about, you know, actually we, we, we were debating whether we we're going to do this uh, text or another text this week, but I think that we landed on the right decision that this being the one we talk about, you know? Yeah. And it, it's, you know, to, to your point about the, you know, this focus on discourse and language and social process. I mean, that is, it, it sort of, it's hard to, um, overstate how important that is, right? I mean, it, it is up until now, I mean, now, now being 1989-90. So leading up to that time, the vast majority of scholarship um, in education in general was focused either from a behaviorist perspective or from a cognitive perspective. Right. And both of those, those approaches had a notion of this sort of decontextualized knowing, right? So you could, mm-hmm. if I wanted to know something about what Ali knows about physics, I could give him a test and that test would tell me what Ali knows about physics. And, and this is the beginning of the, of the sort of understanding that actually a test is a different kind of social context. And it's different than when you're doing physics. Yeah. And so, so when you measure what Ali knows with a test, you're measuring something, but you're not necessarily measuring what Ali knows about physics. You're measuring something about what Ali knows about physics testing, which is not the same thing. And so this idea that if you want to look for learning of, 
of uh, a thing, you have to watch where it's happening, where the activity or the, as, as Brown Collins and Duguid would talk about the authentic activity, where is it that you're actually doing the stuff and what does that look like? And so this is the beginning of, of, you know, Jay Lemke's book is, is really one of the first pieces that was analytical about how kids talk to each other in classrooms and how teachers talk with kids in classrooms. Right. To actually say, like, this is where it happens. Like, it's happening in the classroom with the kids and the teacher, not in the test, not in all these assessments that you've developed, but when they're actually doing the stuff, when they're talking with each other. Um, and so I think that's why it's, it's, you know, considered such an important book. And if you, if as a listener, if you check out the book, one of the things that each chapter has is, you know, sort of like a, a dialogue that happens in the classroom and, you know, it's teacher and students and going back and forth. And, and then there's some sort of like discourse analysis, which includes like, you know, some old, like, you know, computer graphics, yeah. right. From like Dot the DOS printer. Yeah. The DOS days, right. The MS DOS yeah. days. And, you know, you, you look at that and, and, and it can get kind of heady only because, you know, he's like showing like all of these diagrams and, and, and things. But I think that, the part for me that was humbling is, as I'm looking through those, those dialogues and then he goes through and unpacks them. And then I, I, I see myself having some of those same conversations with students. And when he talks about like them from the standpoint of, you know, the teacher reframing what the students have said to maybe make it a little bit more accurate or make it more, yeah. you know, you know, acceptable in the, you know, the science lexicon, it's, 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 um, you have to confront that as a teacher. You have to like say, yeah, I do that too. And, you know, it's probably not right. You know, it's yeah. probably not the, the best way of, of, of doing things. And, and I, I find that really uh, at times kind of dense as a reader, but also so useful in terms of how he unpacks the things. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, and what's cool is he shows these little like segments of the dialogue, but then he includes all of them in. So if you want to read the entire lesson, you can go into the appendix and check out the whole thing, which is kind of right. cool too. You yeah. Know? yeah. I mean, I think that's, that was one of his, one of the big contributions of this book was methodological. So you were saying yeah. there's not a lot of theory here, but really it, it, what it is, is it's a method book. It's a, it's a, how do you analyze talk? Because again, this is early days and yeah. people were just beginning to do this work. So those diagrams of like talk are, you know, to our eyes, you know, 30 years later, they look almost, um, I don't, I don't want to say childish, but certainly simplistic and, yeah. and very like early computer days looking diagrams. They have sort of a flow charty, um, like 1980s, like someone, someone did this in word art, you know, exactly, with like, exactly. Yeah. and so, um, so I think to your point, like that, that part, um, doesn't hold up as well, but the, what, how he talks about that and right. the, the issues that he brings up, you know, especially around power, you know, we, we talked a little bit that, about how this is a precursor to sort of Brian Brown's work and, and, and all, frankly, all of this sort of discourse analytic work that has been done in science education, which includes my work, right? Like yeah. this is the kind of work that I do. Um, and, and the phenomenological work that you did in your dissertation had, had this in it too. Mm -hmm. So the, absolutely. So this idea of like attention to talk, um, and the thing that he's done here that I think still hasn't been taken up or is only really getting taken up now is, is just these issues of power. And, and Brian, 
brings up uh, issues of equity in his work um, and power is embedded in that. But but this idea of the the power dynamics between the teacher and the student and what happens, you know, like with your example, where you take a kid's idea and remake it, right? Like you, you, you reimagine it as a more correct version of itself and then repeat it back to the kid as a sort of teaching technique and what the, what the power dynamics of a classroom um, make that interaction into and, and, and potentially a, a sort of not very healthy interaction, right? Like I'm going to, I'm going to take your idea and change it and give it back to you and see if that's okay. But I'm the power person in the classroom. So of course you're going to say, yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a fascinating, you know, um, look at the way that students and teachers talk in classrooms. Yeah, it's, I would, I would say, and I I think I said this before we jumped on, started recording is that I don't know if the Brian Brown book would exist without this this talking science book um because i i think that in a lot of ways it sets the stage and you can see like he uh, you know lemke like like seeds it throughout by talking about this really and he talks about all of it like he talks about you know race and gender and and power and and all of it because he recognizes all of it um and he, he and he and he shows examples of it right and so i think in a lot of ways he is like i don't know i say the the a grandfather or a precursor, or an ancestor, or something, but he definitely sets the stage for Brian Brown's work. And and I'm sure you know if we were able to you know get Brian Brown on this, he would probably talk about the same thing. You know, in some ways that this this communicated to that. Um, well, because- just just a quick thing about that. So so Judith Green is the series editor for this language and education sure. processes. So Judith and um, Greg Kelly, my colleague, Greg Kelly, and uh, who, you know, well, are, yep. Judith and Greg were great friends and Greg was Brian's advisor. So there's a, there's a familial connection between oh, yeah. all these folks too, right? It, it, you know, it's a small world, but, um, but that's another like connection point to, to Brian. Yeah, so let's talk about the power part because I want to like I, there's a lot I'm like scrolling through this like because I have a, a tons of stuff highlighted, and so this is um, jumping ahead and this is page 84 in the text or like 98 in the PDF if you don't do do the PDF. Um, it says uh, talks about the power dynamics, and so this is really a classroom management thing. Right where it starts, uh, the situation that uh, just to set it up a little bit, uh, a student do- does something right in some sort of dialogue, and the teacher you know corrects them and and sort of like admonishes them and 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 so in analyzing it, uh, Lemke writes, but what adult would submit willingly to the rules of classrooms and schools, having no say in what we must learn? no right to speak unless given that right, no right to communicate with others for any reason, no right to come and go as we please, no say in who our teachers will be or the criteria by which we are judged, being subject to the public embarrassment and admonishment um, ammunition by a person we may not respect. And it's just like, wow, he gets it. He talks about it. Like he talks about the power. And what's interesting is that I just uh, I just blogged about something like this recently mm. um, in which I was a uh, a physics student at Pitt 
where um, the professor cold called us call, you know, just with oh, like, sure, would yeah, talk, yeah. would just talk a call. And, and the situation was that, you know, it was a history of physics course. The teacher would just, you know, assign primary articles like, you know, the, you know, Millikan oil drop experiment, uh, yeah. the photoelectric effect article, Newton's Principia. And he'd give you a list of questions and you just came in and you had to be prepared to answer the questions. And they would just go down the list, Mr. McDonald. And then yeah. you'd answer the question and he'd be like, no. That's not correct. And he would like embarrass you and humiliate you in front of everybody. And then he'd move down the list. And it was just like the worst situation you could possibly imagine in terms of discourse and in terms of power and in terms of humiliation and everything. And it was by far like the most humiliating classroom environment that I've ever experienced. And it's one of the reasons why I don't ever call on students. Oh, I don't, I won't say I will don't ever do it, but I really am resistant to do that because I, I worry that students are going to feel the same way. Like I'm just calling on them. And if they don't have the right answer that I'm, that they're in some way humiliated. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, I find it interesting because he talks about that from a classroom management standpoint, he talks about it and it's all you know, from a power and values, you know, perspective, which is really cool. Yeah, no, it's, but I mean, to some extent, like the quote that you read, um, while I agree with it, you all also can say there's lots of adults that put themselves in those environments, right? There's, There's lots of people who have working environments where they're working for somebody that they don't respect, who humiliates them, who treats them like this. And, and I say that not because I think Jay's wrong, but I think it's interesting too, to think about that as a, you know, when we talk about what are schools preparation for, well, they're also preparation for that, right? So, so this, this idea, which, which is not a great feeling either to think of like the, that's, that part of the function of schools is to prepare people to be systematically humiliated by the people who have power over them and just take it. So, because that's what it takes to be a member of a, a, a functioning, you know, uh, capitalist society or whatever. I don't, you know, it's fascinating stuff to think about um, the broader implications of, of what it means that, that schools have these kind of power dynamics, but. Yeah. Well, I think what, when, and going to another thing he does, this is kind of cool. Cause like early on, he, he has this, this thing. Cause he, he is really trying to, you know, open your eyes as a reader, as a teacher, a teacher of science. Right. And, and have you confront your own, your own like sort of missteps, right? So right. for the first like chapter two, he keeps presenting a, like a similar, you know, sort of like discourse where he, he's involving a student named Eric, right? And this is really cool. So he does this and it's like, oh, Eric's talking about this, Eric's talking about this. But then we get to like chapter three, he reveals that Eric is not really Eric, that he changed it from Aaron and it was a female student and that we've been, he's been talking about this analysis for the first like chapter or two, as if it was a male student when it was really a female student. And what he was doing was intentionally removing that gender piece from the conversation because he didn't want that to be the central part of it, but it was really important because he was worried that somebody would just focus on the gender and not the other stuff when he wanted to separate that as a separate conversation. And then he unpacks that whole thing. And that is just so brilliant. It's so like, it's like, yeah, when he does that, you're just like, Oh yeah, that that's a thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. 
Yeah, no, he's, he's, I mean, the book is really well written and, and I, I don't want to, uh, you know, take credit, um, for him being a member of our community, but he, he is a physics nerd too. Right. Yeah. So, so he, I'm just saying, um, so his, he actually has a PhD in physics. Um, that's what his background was. And then he went into educational scholarship. So, um, but yeah, he, you know, and I think the other thing that he does really nicely, especially given the, the, you know, again, how, how early days we were in this process is, you know, he starts with two minutes in a science classroom. Like he, he, he just basically starts with an example so that, so that it's not abstracted. He's not way up in the, in the stratosphere. He starts with really grounded, as you say, very easily recognizable discourse between a student and teacher, like the sort of thing that, you would see and you still see in classrooms today, right? And so he's he's just, you know, trying to say from the very beginning how we talk with kids in classes matters. And it matters for lots of reasons. It matters for how they learn, but it also matters for who they are and how, what schools mean to them and what schools do to them. And um, I think, yeah, and, and um, you know, obviously, especially in the 90s, um, gender in science was, it still is very salient, but it was becoming very salient in the late eighties mm-hmm. and nineties when there was this clear sense of like, why is it that there are very few women in science? And, um, so yeah, so that's, that's interesting. It's interesting too, to see that historically as he's pulling out this gender thing, um, and hiding it from us to begin with so that we don't use it as a, as a, as a scapegoaty sort of tool in the beginning. Well, and I think to, to exemplify the point of this, you know, not just the gender piece, but also how this echoes to the Brian Brown work. I, I highlighted, uh, this is from 47. I'm just going to, uh, read because it's like right after he reveals to you that Eric is Aaron, right? Mm-hmm. And and he says, "I'm not accusing teachers of conscious prejudice, though I am sure that some teachers do have such prejudices. I am saying that because students can be expected to talk science in non-standard ways with a different thematic pattern than the teachers, an effort is needed to make proper sense of many students' points. If a teacher is more likely to stop and make that effort for some kinds of students than others, that in itself." is a, is enough to effectively discriminate against many students. Yeah. And that's, no, that's just that's it, right? That's right. like that's yeah. the that's 30 years ahead of its time in many respects, right? It's this idea, right? It it is the it is to to some extent like you say exactly the point of Brian Brown's book, right? Right, which is that by by making what we think of as just ordinary classroom decisions, we're potentially or almost always discriminated against some students in our classrooms. And, and I want to say that in no ways am I saying that this diminishes Brian Brown's work, like in Absolutely no way. I, I think what it, what more than it's just like, cause I, I think, you know, it took 30 years for Brian to write that book, right? It took 30 mm-hmm. years for somebody to give us really good examples for how to do that and how to do it well. And to, for us to be, and it was, and, and let's face it, it was not you or I, not two white guys, two old white guys who are going to be able to yeah. be able to do that. It was it was somebody who, you know, has a better understanding of that discourse community as an insider who can say, here's how it's done and done well. Somebody who's actually done it and done it with students in, you know, different di- in diverse settings to be able to do that and show us how to do it, you know, 
And yeah, well, and, and I think the point here, you know, really is, and this is true again, in so many ways in academia is, is actually Brian's point is much more subtle and nuanced and is a different point than this. Like Jay's point, even though they resonate with each other, his point here is really that it was more about there are right answers and there are what kids' ideas ha- are. And um, and when you make kids feel shame for the ideas they have because they're not the right answers, then you you discriminate against them, basically, right? And that right. often that's done through gender. But um, but at this point, there there isn't really a sense or there isn't a lot of talk about science is a culture and uh, there are other cultures in the world that interact with science um, and that the way they interact uh, is incredibly important for us to understand because science isn't right answers. And at this point, really, for the most part, Jay has a still has a there are right answers in science notion. Right. Yeah. And, and I think Brian has, you know, as the result of being, as you say, 30 years later, um, has a much more nuanced view on that. So, so while there is resonance here, you know, it's like, well, it's like going back to what we said about Dewey, like a lot of things that Dewey said resonate with us today and sound like, Oh, well, Dewey said that thing. Well, yeah, he did. But in the, in the social context of his time, it meant something quite different than it does to us now. And that's because we understand a lot more than we did. And it's true of Jay's work too, right? I mean, it's, it's important work, but that doesn't mean the works that's built on it is just derivative. It's just like, oh, well, I'm just saying what Jay said 30 right. years ago. Yeah. Well, and I don't think either of us are saying it's derivative. I think it's right. I think that no, definitely I, I, not. Right. And I think that I like that term resonant. I think it is. A, it's it's resonating. It's re, it's it's that, you know, echoing or resonating across time. But I do think that your your last point there is really critical is that, you know, as readers, we're the ones who make meaning of the text. Right. And so we, you know, reading this, this is one of the reasons why I read some books like numerous times, because, you know, depending on where I am in my life, I get different things out of it, you know, because we make the meaning. And so this reading something that John Dewey wrote in like 1910, if somebody who was in 1910 had read it, they're going to have completely different, get different meaning from that than those of us who are reading it, you know, 110 years later. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at that and saying, oh, wow, look at all of this stuff that we're getting out of there when, you know, maybe it is not the same, you know, it's a different context. And that's, I think right. that's it. Actually, that the, to go completely meta, right, mm-hmm. is, is all of the situatedness of all of this, right, is that... Sure is is the point uh it's the point of last last episode you know the the situated cognition stuff with uh braun collins and good do good and it's also this stuff it's all about the situated nature of all of it yeah yeah right yeah that this that this um in some sense is uh well, not in some sense. So this is a cultural artifact and we're interacting with it as if it's an, uh, an interlocutor, right? Like it's a person right. or it's another person. It's just that the person can't really respond. Um, all we can do is read their ideas and, and think about them and, and make connections ourselves. So yeah, it's all, it's all social context. And then, you know, you and I talking about it brings a whole new level of meaning to it, right? Because we're, we're having a conversation about Jay's words and interpreting them in our own context between you and I about the way that we think about ideas. Yeah. 
So it, yeah, it is. It's rabbits or turtles all the way down. However you want. To, oh, right? nice. Yeah. That's great. I like that. So, so what, what else do you think we need to, we need to talk about with this? Like, I mean, I, it's so, it's so dense. There's so like, I argued before we started recording that we could have almost had spent like, like we went with the Brian Brown art uh, book, like chapter by chapter, we could have almost done that with this. Um, mm-hmm. But that's not the point of like these episodes. These episodes are to really just talk about some learning theories that have influenced our work and, and some, you know, and, and you call this a, a methods book. And I think that's a, a better way of, of describing it. Cause I think that the discourse analysis does set up, you know, how, how to do this, how to look at, you know, the things that are happening in our classrooms and focusing on, you know, the, the discourse moves. Like we've talked about like the IRE chains and the IRF yeah. chains. And while Lemke doesn't use that, that terminology, he does use something very similar to it. Right. And I think yeah. it sets the stage for Cause the IRE stuff comes after this. Right. I mean, is that like, like who's the, who would yeah, be that's the per- a good, that's a good question. I don't know who we would associate. Maybe, maybe we'll, we'll do some digging in between now and, and our next episode and figure out who actually, who actually titled that that um, that classroom pattern of talk? Because actually, in my head, before we revisited this book, I had it in my head that he did name it. Right. You um, could hear you could hear it, but he uses yeah. completely different terminology, right? Yeah. He 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 almost ta- he talks it almost like from a bridge standpoint, right? He's like mm-hmm. an opening bid, like in like he's he, he talks about it from that standpoint more so than initiating, you know, and response right. and evaluation. I think he does use the evaluation. You know, but he also talks about rather than feedback, he talks about elaboration, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's some subtle differences, but I mean, again, it's resonant. It's resonant yeah. to the way we talk about it now, but, you know. Yeah, and the bid language comes from um, from uh, linguistics and, and discourse analysis and linguistics. So, so that term, like a bid to speak or a bid to question or a bid, it, it mean, you know, basically it's, it's the, their way of describing somebody asking to be able to to put their idea out there, right? So, so that terminology, I think, was there. All of these folks were learning that language, right? This, they, you know, again, Jay's a PhD in physics, and he's learning about discourse analytics. So at this point, he's early on in this, and and a lot of the people that are working in this in these working groups in this community, like they're working on discourse analysis. And this is, you know, again, this is pretty early days. Now, it probably started in the in the early '80s, maybe the late '70s. Um, but but this is, you know, this this is a one of the well, this book is a big move into specifically science education. So. Um, you know, obviously, for for obvious reasons, a lot of this work started in in language, um, but it was quickly identified as something that was relevant across disciplinary contexts. So, yeah, so he talks about triadic dialogue, and and he talks about um, di- uh, just teacher student debate. He has he has other um, sort of ways of framing all this language. Um, but yeah, you can see the patterns, right? He's right. seeing the same patterns. He's just not naming them exactly the same. And, and triadic for, for those folks who are out there who don't have the text in front of you and, and you're wondering what the heck are yeah. they talking about? It's like a, a three step move in, you know, so there's, you know, one is like some sort of like opening, right. And then, then two is some sort of response from a student and three is what do we do with that? So triadic mm-hmm. is like a three move thing in in conversation and in, in classroom discourse and and while you're talking i did a real quick google search and oh, okay. we can we can we can 
like do some more work with this to see if this is you know to see if like a dig, uh, deeper dive mm-hmm. but uh Sinclair and Colthard in 1975 mm-hmm. and wow. so they introduced the IRF um exchange structure so it doesn't start IRE it starts IRF well so they have IRE and IRF they talk about it oh they uh, talk about both okay. both right that, but okay. you know they're the first ones who so we can look into that see if that's really a uh the the primary the origin source, the origin yeah. the origin but, story for the IRE IRF yeah but you certainly hear like IRE is triadic right so right. You ha- absolutely so, so the so the triadic dialogue and the IRE are are of the same um yeah background basically um and, and honestly you know that's that's not that you know far ahead of this work right it's not that far ahead i mean because you got to remember in 1975 and 1990 it wasn't like you know we had like the easy access to all of this stuff that like right now like i just googled that right and was able to find it within seconds and you know in 1990 you know going back to the stuff we were talking about at the beginning of the episode um there was like not that easy access to all of this stuff. Right. And so, you know, I'm sure Lemke was probably, you know, while he's a smart dude working with lots of other smart people, um, I, I, I doubt whether he was, had the access to such diverse scholars that we do now, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, and it, and it was a whole, I mean, even, I don't, you know, but when I was in graduate school, which is a little bit before you were in graduate school, right? Like I, I was still in the days where you went to the library, you got the journal that you wanted off the shelf and you copied it. You made a Xerox, you know, um, um, a photocopy and you triple hole punched it and you put it in a binder and you had like, you organized all your, your journal articles that way. And, you know, five years after that, that was a dead thing. And then it was, you know, EndNote and, and everything. And then five years after that, it was PDFs. Everything was PDFs and you never, you never go to the library anymore. You just look it up on the internet. So, um, and libraries are turned into learning spaces and that goes back to what we were talking about like 10 episodes ago, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess I'm wondering, I, I don't know if we have to say much more about this book, um, not because I don't think there's more to say, but I'm wondering if, um, you know, people who are interested can certainly reach out and, and um, find the book pretty easily. Yeah, but, we, have, um, we have put in a, a link in the show notes because it's, sure. it's, it's just links to Eric and it's an open, you know, it's an open source um, there for yeah. people to check out. Um, it is, like I said, at times it's dense and at times um, it, you're reading through things and, and the analysis is, is rich and mm-hmm. thick and that's great. Um, but I think that more than anything, it gives you, for me as a teacher, so as a, you know, you and I are still classroom teachers. We might not be teaching science, but we're teaching how to teach science um, or how to teach right in general. Um, I think that what it does, it, it's, it, it's, gives us the a perspective of what look what classrooms look like but it also gives us a, a perspective of what our classrooms look like and mm-hmm. how we talk right yeah. and so 
I think that's the part for me that is, uh, like I said, humbling and also reflective. It forces reflection for me as a classroom teacher about the types of discourse moves I use in my classroom. But I mean, both like, and especially in this Zoom time right now, oh my gosh, and we've talked about this, right, is if we were to analyze some of the discourse that's happening in the Zoom classrooms with science or with anything, I think we would see... Uh, a, a lot of the things he talks about in terms of these IREs, you know, not using that language, um, mm-hmm. but also all of the corrective things that they talk about just on steroids, like yeah. t- t- times 100, right? right? That you would see it so much more because so much of the other things, other contextual things that we get as classroom teachers has just been stripped from us. Mm-hmm. You know, in some cases, you know, we're not even seeing the students. And so we're completely uh, basing our responses and our next moves on what the students say. And so, and we don't have all of the other context to draw upon, then we're just listening to the words and how the words are say, being said. Yeah. And that's just like, yeah, we're teaching like with, you know, an arm behind our back, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing um, related to that is, is, you know, you were, you've mentioned a couple of times about classroom management stuff and and i think this the language of that and how how jay talks about this you know the tactics of control and how really um a lot of this stuff is meant to um you know control the children in the classroom you know in in lots of ways and and as we've moved into these more online environments i think teachers do feel more out of control right because right. it's much because a lot of these tactics don't work like it's very hard to, um, you know, I mean, I guess to use his language, but to sort of humiliate or, or um, you know, right. sort of quash kids in a class where they don't have to turn on their camera or their microphone and, you know, can type stuff to you if they want. Right. So it, so it, it gets, it really changes your ability to, um, to have control in the traditional sense. And this idea of, um you know, that we talk about, I think a lot of, of good science teaching is really about relationships and relationships. You can still build relationships in zoom. It's harder and it requires a lot more work, mm-hmm. but, Absolutely. but it can happen. Um, but, but the control is much harder, um, because it, it, you just don't have the tool set, um, when you're in, in this zoom environment. So, so you would hope that what that led to was lots of teachers realizing that and starting to build relationships with their kids. I think what happened, what happened is more like what you described, which is this sort of um, re-emphasis on control and, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to, to bring the hammer down to really make kids participate and make kids, um, you know, be uh, students. Um, And I think, that's that's unfortunate because it, it, it's another lost opportunity, right? Yeah, and I think that – so I'm going to share a, a, a Lemke quote that I think does a really good job of – and I think it's a good like sort of like period to this conversation because I think it yeah. brings it back around because I think this, this is like, I don't know, early, like in the beginning. Like this is like the introduction actually because he t- talks about why are we talking about communication? Like, why is communication a thing? Yeah. Like he says, communication, as I will use the term in this book, is always a social process. Yeah. We do not communicate by the transmission of signs or signals, but by creating and manipulating social situations. Communication is always the creation of community. 
And that's the part that I think that this past year with the pandemic and with Zoom, we've been stripped of the creation of community and a focus on communication solely from the standpoint of, well, not solely, I, I don't want to use that sort of like, but I think that the creation of community is the part that we've lost. Yeah, well, well, or it's I been really say, hard. It's been really yes, hard. I think that's what it is, is I don't think we've, I think what happened is the the ones of us who were who valued that and wanted to build community in our in our classrooms um, lost a lot of the tools that we had for doing that, right. and so we had to reimagine that. And and if you didn't, it, for lots of good reasons, because you were exhausted, because um, it was difficult, because it took a lot of time, because it reduced the amount of curriculum you could cover, all these things, then. Um, then what tended to happen is you did abandon that building of community, right. um, either usually implicitly, but I think that that led to bad outcomes, um, which, you know, is, is sad, but I think, um, you know, we have to recover from this. And I do hope that, that the lesson learned going forward is um, when we get back together in classrooms, in person, that we, we don't want to lose the opportunities to build community now that we're back together and we have that tool set again. So yeah. I think that's a good place for us to yeah. close on that. I mean, either that, or we could say that chapter three was if you weren't whispering to Scott. Yes. <laughs> like <laughs> that's this, is, this was said to Ollie. Yeah, <laughs> you just stop whispering to Scott and listen. Yeah, there's there's a there's a, a lot of that. There's some really rich rich dialogues there that I think are yeah. you know eye opening. Yeah, yeah. I think to your point, like it's what even if you don't want to read the book, going and looking at a few of these examples of classroom talk and how he talks about them and breaks them down, I think is really um, enlightening. So yeah. well worth your time. It's almost like you know you. I will never say that as a parent. And then someone records you saying yeah. that as a parent. And it's like, oh, did I just say that as a parent? Yeah. That's what you'll feel by reading this is like, oh, That's I right. never say that. And then you realize, yeah, I have oh, said that. Yeah. Yeah. Just said it in the last class. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm doing this for you. I'm oh, teaching this for you. That's right. the one section. I'm doing this for you. Uh -huh. And you're not writing this down. Why aren't you writing this down? This is going to be on the test. Yeah. This is going to be on the test. Yeah, uh, and then you'll have to re uh, then you're gonna have to take it again next year because yeah. you need this for graduation. It's like ah, uh, oh, oh, my heart sinks. Yeah, yeah, that's terrible. All right, so of course uh, you're gonna use this later in life. Yes, yeah. you need this. You need to know yeah. electron configuration. How are you? How are you gonna solve projectile motion problems if you don't do a hundred of them today? So shut up right. and get to work. Yes, this will be on your permanent record. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joyce. Joyce, do you have a joy, Oscar? Um, yeah, I have a I have a relevant joy. This is a little nerdy, um, but but recently a colleague, my colleague in Ireland, pointed me to Z Library, um, oh. and Z Library, and I, I'll put it in show notes. But the URL is one, like the numeral one, lib. us. Um, but Z Library is um, it is books and articles and other things, but it's just scans. It's high, good, high quality scans of books. And so I got my, I got my new copy of my Jay Lemke was very wonky because I had scanned it myself. So I went on to Z library to see if they had it and they did. Um, and, but it has <clears throat> a, actually really 
a lot of contemporary books. I don't know how they do this, but they have a lot of, well, they have 7.4 million books and they're just, you just search for a book and you can download it, a PDF of it right to your little computer. So, um, so this, when he pointed this out to me, I was like, holy cow, this is amazing. And it, they've got 80,000 articles. I haven't looked at the articles because I have, um, you know, I have access to a university library. So I have really good access to articles. I tend not to need to go searching in other places, but if you're not associated, you know, if you're a school teacher and you're not associated with a big university with a fancy pants library, um, there's probably a lot of great articles. They got 80 million articles in there. You can probably find some stuff you want. So that is awesome. Like yeah. I, I'm just looking at the the books that they're just like on the front cover. And I just put in a couple of titles as you were talking, like yeah. they have the, the mindset book by Carol Dweck, which is like, yeah. you know, one of those books that's out there that a lot of people read and you can read it for free just by downloading the text. That is and one of the books that we we're planning to talk about coming up. Uh, I don't have my copy at home. And I was like, I wonder if that's on there. And sure enough, it's in there. And I just downloaded a PDF. So there There we go. go. Yeah. Leave Wanger. It is coming. It's on the horizon. Um, Well, it's, uh, it's interesting. You talk about books because I have a book and I'm going to see if it's actually in um, there. Um, Oh, it is. You can download it as a PDF. Oh my gosh. Um, Look at this. You just yes, clapped. Three claps did, for the big dog. I, I did clap. Um, it's called The Missing Course by David Gublar. Um, oh. And it's everything they never taught you about college teaching. And so this is a book that I'm reading with some colleagues on campus. Um, I, I, I came across this book by listening to something called The, the Heterodoxy Podcast. Mm, yeah. And yeah, they were... They were discussing a book called The Amateur Hour, which is a historical analysis of college teaching, right? And they talked about it's amateur hour because they say that there's a lot of people who do the work of college teaching, teaching yeah. in college environments, who de- and and don't necessarily have you know the expertise or the pedagogical background to do that. And so this this book, The Amateur Hour, examined that through history. Well, the missing course talks about like it's sort of like the primer for like all things um, teaching and learning. So it talks about like student engagement through active learning. What, what's the resources? So it's like each chapter is like a, uh, like a primer onto a different part of like motivation. You know, each one talks about a different aspect. And so I, I work with a lot of teachers who don't have that background. And, and so while for you and I, we've taken entire courses on a lot of this stuff, um, a chapter is probably more than a lot of folks have gotten. And so, and what's cool about it is when I've done these, these, these kind of book groups, learning communities before, um, that usually there's somebody in the sciences and it, and, and you and I are, uh, we're in that community. So it's easier mm-hmm. for us to talk about that. They, they go, well, that doesn't work in our area. Well, yeah, Gublar, yeah goes right at it like hey this is why you should do this in science he just like goes right at it and Mm. realizes that that's going to be one of the the naysayers one of the people who are going to um go against it and he just leans in and i I find that to be really uh admirable and and that's a great read and so that we met as a first group this this past week and we're going to be uh moving through the the rest of the book over the next few weeks so yeah cool yeah and and it's in z library and it's in Z Library. You can download your own copy as a as a PDF right there. So there you go. Pretty cool. <sighs> Crazy. Wild. That yes. is awesome. 
Nice. Yeah. Uh, we, we have come to the end of the show then. Yeah. And this has been a fun examination of uh, Lemke and other texts. Look at other us. Texts. Other texts. And this has been great. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Okay. All right. So I guess, I guess we'll see everybody maybe next time. Maybe in between. Maybe then. See you then. Bye now. Okay.